These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness and the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazarot, and Dizahav. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. I want to underline that verse. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them, after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, I always have to say it like that, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edre. Beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, but we'll pause at that comma and come back to that in just a little bit. The book of Deuteronomy is the end of the Pentateuch which is the first five books of your Bible. In Jewish circles, it is called the Torah, and that word means law or instruction. And in many ways, Deuteronomy is the culmination. It's the climax of everything we've been building to in the Pentateuch. And I read several introductions as I was getting ready for this, and one man that I really enjoyed this, he compared it to the Romans of the Old Testament. And that the primary saving act of God had already happened. And this was the result of 40 years of Moses meditating and living in the afterwork of that great salvation. And that is, Romans is the same way. That it's a, it is the result of Paul's decades of meditation on the gospel and what it means. I don't think it's an exact parallel, but I think it's, it's a good description. It's a lengthy meditation and a series of sermons, or one big sermon, depending on how you read it, on covenant faithfulness. The Hebrew title is Hadevarim which means the words. And you see there in verse one, it says, these are the words. That's the first word of the book of Deuteronomy. And we get that title from the Greek translation of this book, the Septuagint, where they titled it the Deuteronomion, which means the second law. Deuteros is like the second thing. You can hear duo in there a little bit. And then namas or namia is the word for law. So you put them together, you have the second law. And although it bears that title, while this book does repeat a lot of the law we've already read in Exodus and especially in Leviticus, parts of Numbers, it's, it's not, strictly speaking, an outline of the law. That's not its primary purpose. You know, the primary purpose of Leviticus was to give a lot of specific instruction, but the purpose of Deuteronomy, it is a composition, a compilation, as I said, depending on if this was once or, or many times put together, of Moses' last words prior to the entry of the promised land. And there are laws that are given in here. There are lots of exhortations. There's blessings and curses. There's a song at the end that all of Israel was to memorize. It's an appeal of a faithful shepherd to his flock for the last time. Moses had been leading these people for 40 years, and now they're about to be separated. These are the last words of Moses to his people. And in many ways, of course, it is God speaking to his people before they enter the promised land. Now, right away, I've already referred to a few questions here. Verse one, it tells us these are the words that Moses spoke, but uh, most people, when they read this book, or at least when they study it, uh, they do not conclude that Moses was the author of this book. There are several places where it gives commentary on the things that Moses said that seems to be from a later date. 
And then we wonder about, uh, some people claim they can see where there were edits and their different things were brought together. So that raises questions. And in fact, Deuteronomy is the linchpin of what is called the documentary hypothesis and every other liberal reconstruction of how the Old Testament came about. And again, when I use that term liberal, I like to clarify, I'm not talking about politics, I'm talking about theology, right? Liberal theology that is much more open to that which is unorthodox, shall we say. But uh, the documentary hypothesis is the belief that there were four, maybe even five different traditions that were stitched together to create the Pentateuch, the first five books. And Deuteronomy is, is kind of the key to this because there is a theory that was, that was brought about that Deuteronomy was not written by Moses, that it may be carrying on legitimate tradition, but that when it says in 2 Kings 22, verse 8, that during Josiah's reign, they found the book of the law in the temple. And this led to all of Josiah's reforms. Because that is a time period where folks are more or less able to nail down dates, nail down kings and rulers and things like that. I believe that's probably the primary motivation why. People say that's when Deuteronomy was written. They found that book of the law. It wasn't so much that it was found as much as it was written then and it was being passed around then as, as kind of a prophetic rebuke of the people. And so they, they'll say Deuteronomy was not written by Moses. It was written as descriptive of the things that Moses would have said. And that's why they say things like it repeats parts of numbers and all of that. Uh, clearly, when you read this book, there are parts of it that were not written by the hand of Moses. And this isn't controversial. In chapter 34, verse 5, it's going to say Moses climbed on the mountain and died. That probably was not written by Moses. Now, it could have been. It could have been proleptic. It could have been written ahead of time by the prophetic word. But it seems simpler to say that this was just written later, perhaps by Joshua. There are other places where it's going to say, and that is therefore its name to this day. And that kind of indicates, all right, there's, this is being written later, or at least updated later. So uh, that's, that's not controversial. We don't deny those things. But the question is, can you remove this book that far from its context and have it still be as meaningful as, as it is? And there are people that are firm believers in the inspiration of Scripture who hold to that idea. Um, I'm not one of them. The problem is, and this is the big problem for all of these reconstructions of the Old Testament, is that they're all speculative. We don't have different versions of Deuteronomy. We don't have different ways that it was split up. We haven't found like this piece circulating on its own and then this piece over here. They do the same thing with Isaiah, that Isaiah was very clearly two books combined into one. Well, we've only ever found one Isaiah. So it's all speculative. There's no tradition that this is how it's happened. There's only tradition that we have. So all of these things are based on a presupposition that this had to be written later and that it had to be stitched together. And there's a number of reasons why people believe that, largely because in the 1800s there was this theory of, of evolution was being applied to everything. And it was applied to texts and it was applied to religions. And so we cannot, under that idea, have something that is so formalized and so sophisticated and so complex as Deuteronomy this early in Israel's history. That's a presupposition. There's zero evidence for it. But when you start breaking it apart and starting to see where there might be gaps, sometimes you can find things that seem persuasive. But I like to go back to the very beginning and say, where did this idea come from in the first place? 
And it came from some German guy making stuff up. In fact, the more we study it and the more we're discovering all of this ancient literature in Ugaritic and from Babylon and from Assyria, the style of Deuteronomy, the genre of Deuteronomy, even the, the language that is used is so typical of the time when it claims to have been written. There was a trend a few years ago that really leaned into Deuteronomy as a formal suzerainty treaty between Israel and God. Uh, that's, that's kind of fallen a little out of favor now because people, when they find a genre that they want to apply to the Bible, sometimes you have to kind of bend the Bible up to fit in the box. So it's better to say, this seems to have been written in the air at the same time this other stuff was in the air because there are similarities to it. But as we look at it, it certainly would fit being written at Moses' time. They used to say things like, there was no such thing as writing in Moses' day. And then we found out that it had been around for like a thousand years in Moses' day, so, or more, who knows? We just don't know. We make things up. And I think that it is clear that there are certain parts of Deuteronomy that were written later. So perhaps there was some kind of redaction that happened later. A faithful man of God who would have been inspired by God brought these things together. Uh, I think at the very least, and I think you can go farther than this, there is a mosaic core to this book. That this was, these are Moses' words. And that while they may have been put into a final form, maybe by Joshua, maybe by a, another faithful scribe later, Jesus, in Luke 24, 44, was comfortable referring to the book of the law of Moses without qualifying its author. And that's good enough for me. If our holy, impeccable Savior was able to say the book of Moses without lying, then I think we can call it Moses' book too. So we're going to read in chapter 31 that Moses wrote this book down and handed it to Joshua. I believe that's exactly what happened that Moses wrote these things down. And so we're going to treat this book like Jesus did as Moses' book. And once you do that, all the rest of these theories about how the rest of the Old Testament evolved, they really start to fall apart because it all kind of starts from Deuteronomy. And if you've been to uh, maybe a secular school and you went through some sort of history of religion class, maybe you've come across these things, know that there are good godly answers to this stuff and that Christians are not just a bunch of dopes that aren't aware of these things. We spend a lot of time thinking about them and there are very smart people that still believe it. So that ought to be a faith builder for you. But we're going to move on from that. This is the book of Moses, although I have no problem with agreeing that maybe Joshua, maybe someone else gave it its final shape. This is Moses' book. Now, I usually like to give a good outline here. The structure of Deuteronomy is notoriously difficult to nail down. So what I think we're going to do is we're just going to, as we go along, I'll kind of give you each piece of the outline. Uh, but what I can give you is the broad Pentateuchal, I don't know if that's a word, but we're going to make it up. The Pentateuchal structure here, where Deuteronomy absolutely fits. The Pentateuch, as we said before, is constructed in the form of a chiasm, meaning it starts at point A, it goes to point B, you get to point C in the middle, then it comes back out to point B and back out to point A again, except the second half of it has changed and transformed because of what happened in the center. And in a chiastic structure, the ends and the center are the most important pieces. And so what you have in this structure in the book of Genesis, 
You have the children of Israel coming out of the promised land, which is, of course, the micro form of all of creation coming out of the Garden of Eden and into sin. But they go down to Egypt. The book of Exodus, they come out of Egypt and they're traveling through the wilderness and they arrive at Mount Sinai. Where in the book of Leviticus, they are given the law. God's presence dwells among them. And in fact, we've been over this a million times, but I still love to talk about it. The center of the Torah is Leviticus. The center of Leviticus is chapter 16, which is about the Day of Atonement. And the center of that chapter is the description of the high priest going into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling the, sprinkling the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. It's the blood of the Lamb that makes the difference. And so then in Numbers, we're traveling through the wilderness again, except this time we're going towards the promised land. We're going away from Sinai. Now in Deuteronomy, we are, it's the drum roll prior to the entrance to the promised land. So we're starting and ending in the promised land, but things are very different now because something has changed. And what changed in the middle was we encountered God and God saved his people. There has been atonement made. So this is what Deuteronomy is. It's the ultimate call for Israel to live up to everything that has happened to them so far. Not just for their own sake, but as Paul tells us in Corinthians, these things were written down for our benefit as Christians. Their story is the ultimate typology for salvation. The fall from grace into the slavery of sin, being brought out of sin, passing through the waters of baptism, meeting God and learning his holy presence at the mountain, traveling through the wilderness and coming again to fellowship with God. And the reason Moses is going to speak so strongly is because Israel had spent 40 years on an 11-day journey. We read in verse 2. It is 11 days journey from Horeb, which Horeb is the mountain range. Sinai is the specific peak, okay? By the way of Mount Seir, which is in Edom, to Kadesh Barnea. That's 11 days. So what took them so long? Well, you know that. We just finished the book of Numbers that they had refused to go in. And we're going to read about it again tonight. And while this generation had seen some victories so far, Sihon and Og, the greatest challenge was still ahead and Moses would not be going with them. And so he's going to urge them to keep their covenant and in, to lean into our title for tonight. He's going to tell them, your obedience determines your experience. If you want to experience the joys awaiting you in this promised land, or for our case, the abundant life of Christ, your obedience is going to set the meter for how much you're able to experience it. These first three chapters have a historical review, mostly of the book of Numbers, and then we're going to get into chapter 4 where there's a call to serve the Lord alone. And we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 4. But if we want to get there, we've got to read. So we left Moses hanging in verse 6. Let's come back to it where Moses, in the land of Moab, says to the people, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. So we're picking up at the beginning of Numbers now. Turn and take your journey. And go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah and the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. I'll just pause and say this. If you don't have a good Bible atlas, I highly recommend you invest in one so that when you're reading passages like this with a lot of place names that you don't recognize, have it open right next to you. That's what I do. See, I have set the land before you, verse 8. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. 
May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. So he's not complaining about their numbers. He's just saying, I can't lead you alone. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come up to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Amorites, there were more than one tribe of people in the promised land, but the Bible often uses the Amorites as a stand-in for all of them because they seem to have been one of the primary tribes there. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Ashkol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents and fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. And the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. And to him and to his children, I will give the land on which he has trodden because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Then you answered me, we've sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight. 
for I am not in your midst, lest you be destroyed before your enemies. So I spoke to you and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. We are only going to very quickly discuss these historical matters because we did go over them in great detail in the book of Numbers. If you were not here for that, I would highly encourage you to go back and take a listen to it. But first, he describes the command to leave Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, and take possession of the promised land. And Moses acknowledges that God had indeed fulfilled the first part of his promise to Abraham. Remember when God told Abraham to go out of his tent and look up in the sky and number the stars? He said, that's how many your descendants are going to be. Well, Moses said, I can't lead you by myself because God has done that. He's fulfilled it. So you may want to put a marker in the margins there. Genesis 15, 5 was fulfilled by this time. And this required the appointment of judges who were going to keep the law faithfully and justly. And upon their arrival at Kadesh Barnea, the people said, all right, let's send spies into the land. Numbers 13.2 tells us that the Lord told them, send spies into the land. This isn't a contradiction. Sometimes the Lord is in things that people propose themselves. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that people would have said, Moses, can we send out spies? Moses said, sounds good to me. God said, sounds good to me. And so they went. And even though the land was good, there were Anakim there. We're going to talk about the Anakim in just a little bit. But giants is the short version. And the people refused. And they cried out blaspheming as if God was not good. That God didn't take us out of Egypt to save us. He took us out of Egypt to destroy us. And so that whole generation except for Caleb and Joshua, who were the two faithful spies, were sentenced to death. You're not going in. I'm going to make you stay out here until you're all dead, and then you can go. And they had a change of heart, but they were defeated at the hand of the Amorites. And this proves, for the purposes of this story and the way that Moses is telling it, he's reminding them, you cannot take this land by yourself. You tried and you failed. So I'm going to command you, he's going to command them in chapter 4 to keep God's commandments. And he's reminding them of what happens when you don't keep God's commandments. Covenant faithfulness led to covenant blessing and vice versa. And so Moses reminds them. Chapter 2. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir, which is in Edom. Then the Lord said to me, you've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people, you are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession." You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat. You shall also buy water from them with money so that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the works of your hands. He knows you're going, yes, he knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road from Elath and Ezion Geber. Ezion Geber is the northernmost point 
of the Gulf of Aqaba, if you have your Bible atlas open. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. That's a very interesting verse. We're going to get back to it. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now rise up and go over the brook Zered. So he went over the brook Zered. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. And the book of Numbers narrates the various ways in which God brought judgment upon them during those years. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession." It is also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites call them Zamzumim, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau, who live in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them. And they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avim, because I know you were wondering about them, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftarim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and settled in their place. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So the first section was about going to the promised land and the refusal to go in. This describes the wilderness wanderings, but only for a minute, and it gets into the story of them coming back from the wilderness. I want to mention very briefly, if you look here, he's, they've been wandering for many days in the direction of the Red Sea around Mount Seir. And then the Lord tells them to turn northward and to go to the promised land. We already read back that it was 11 days journey from Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. We already went over this in great detail in the book of Exodus, but these are some of the verses that give us the most assurance of what the Red Sea was, where Mount Sinai was, and where Israel would have crossed the Red Sea. Traditionally, Mount Sinai is on the western side of what's called the Gulf of Aqaba and what now bears the name the Sinai Desert. However, if that's where Mount Sinai was, the question becomes, what Red Sea did they cross? And what the, the modern, shall we say, liberal theologian tries to say is, well, the word Red Sea in the Bible is Yam Suf. Yam means sea. Suf means reeds. So when it says the Red Sea, it really means the Reed Sea. And it wasn't that they crossed a big body of water. It's that they crossed the swamplands up in the northern part of Goshen in Egypt. Now, let me say in fairness, that would be equally a miracle if the Lord were to dry up the bayou so they could walk through it. 
but that is not what the Bible describes. Yamsuf does literally mean read sea, but you cannot then assume that by read sea they mean the marshes of Egypt. And the reason you can't say that is because everywhere else in the Bible, when it says Yamsuf, it's describing the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba. The Red Sea looks sort of like this. It's, it's kind of round like the sea is, but then it's got these two almost antenna-looking things, and they're called two gulfs, the Gulf of Suez, maybe you've heard of the Suez Canal, and the Gulf of Aqaba, that's A-Q-A-B-A. -A. That's the easternmost one. And Ezion Geber, in 2 Chronicles and elsewhere, is described as being at the Red Sea, at the Yom Suf. We know where Ezion Geber is. It's the northernmost tip of the Gulf of Aqaba. Therefore, we would assume that when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea or the Yom Suf, they would have crossed that Gulf of Aqaba. Here's another reason why we think that. That Mount Sinai would have had to be in the, what's called the, um, oh goodness, the Saudi Peninsula, the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, rather than the Sinai Peninsula, because what does he say? It's 11 days from Mount Sinai, wherever it is, to Kadesh Barnea, which is at the southernmost tip of Israel. But what did it say? By way of Mount Seir. We know where that is too. That's in Edom, which is directly south of Israel. So if you're coming from the other side of the Red Sea, you're going all the way north to come around. Are you telling me they're going to go then south and then come up again so that they could go by way of Mount Seir? Or does it make more sense that if they crossed that water, the mountain would have been on the other side of that water? So that's why there are various places that are proposed as a different location for Mount Sinai. It's not terribly important from a theological perspective, but it is interesting for an archaeological reason. It seems to me that when the Lord told them, go back to the Red Sea and wander around in Seir, this is the desert region in the southern portion of Edom, which is in the Arabian Peninsula, which tells us that that's where Mount Sinai would have been. I spent a whole day talking about this when we were back in Exodus. Go back and take a listen if you like. I just wanted to point that out because these, these things are here. And there is a traditional site, which is in the Sinai Peninsula. And we even call it the Sinai Peninsula now. But that does not seem to be what the Bible is telling us. And anyway, have some fun looking that up on your own. I'm sure you'll find some very interesting stuff that you can look into. But what the Lord is doing is he's, he's sending them back. They condensed the 40 years, skipping to when God sent them north. Once again, if they're wandering in that desert, it makes sense for them to go north. If they're in the other desert, you're really going more east than north. And he mentions these three nations that they encountered. He says, I don't want you taking their land because I've already given them their land. And he describes a victory over a certain people group that each one of them had. First, we have the land of Edom. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And it says that they defeated the Horites and took possession of their land. The second is the land of Moab. Moab was one of the incestuous sons of Lot, if you remember that from the book of Genesis. And they were given their land. They defeated what were called the Emim. And the third is the land of Ammon. Ben-Ami was also one of the incestuous sons of Lot. And from him came the Ammonites. They had their territory and they defeated what were called the Zamzumim. And all of these, they said, oh, these were Rephaim. Now you have all of these im words. What does that mean? I am, im is the plural in Hebrew. So calling them the Rephaim, you almost could call them the Rephaites. 
It's a tribal name. And Rephaim here seems to be a variant of what is called the Nephilim in the book of Genesis. Genesis 6-4 tells us that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days prior to the flood and also afterward. So Nephilim, the giants, were on the earth before the flood. And then Genesis 6-4 says, and also afterward, when the sons of God, that's a euphemism for angelic beings, came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. We've talked about them before. Nephilim means the fallen ones. These are half-demon babies that grow up to be giants, that grow up to be heroes and warriors. Every culture you look at has stories of some half-god, half-man hero that in the Disney version always seems rather nice and kind, but if you read the actual stories, was a terrible person to be around. There were tribes of these guys in the Bible, and it seems that the generic name used for them at this time were the Rephaim. We've already read about the Anakim, which were the ones they were worried about, but the Lord tells us that the Moabites defeated the Emim, the tribe of giants, and that the Ammonites defeated the Zamzumim, which was a tribe of giants. These were abominable half-breeds that needed to be eradicated, not from one country and another, but from heaven and earth. It was one of the greatest sins the Bible described. It was that sin that caused God to say, all right, I, that's enough. I'm going to flood the world. God is not going to allow the line of men to be corrupted, which could give us a large insight into why the Lord insisted that they wipe out every man, woman, and child of these tribes, because this was the work of the devil. It also mentions the Kaftarim, but the Kaftarim are different. We know who they are. It's the Philistines. The Kaftarim were the sea peoples. They were of a Greco-Roman or perhaps Phoenician extraction who came to live on the coastlands of Israel. And it says that they had driven out the Avim, which were their giants. But it also explains why Goliath and his brothers are fighting for the Philistines later. Because we know that they were living in Gaza and, of course, in Gath in Goliath's case. What's the point of this passage? Not just to give us interesting insights into the ancient battles they had to fight, but to show us God had taken each of these tribes, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, who were all related to Abraham. He had given all of them an inheritance. He had driven out their giants, and he was now protecting their rights from his own people. So if God could do that for these other tribes, surely he could do this for his own people. So you're worried about the Anakim? What about the Zamzumim? <laughs> what about the Avim? What about the Emim? They're gone because I empowered these other nations. And they're not even my covenant nations. You don't think I can do this for you? That's the whole purpose of Moses telling the story in this way. Moving on to verse 26. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who live in Seir, the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. 
Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Yahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction. Every city, men, women, and children, we left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Arawer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. Moving on into chapter 3. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, famous for its bulls later on in the Bible. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people to battle at Edre. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him. For I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og, also the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites call it Senir. All the cities of the Tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Seleka and Edre, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. So how big was one of these Rephaim? Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? They kept the bed. Nine cubits was its length, that's 13 and a half feet. And four cubits its breadth, that's six feet, according to the common cubit, which is about 18 inches. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Arawer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Yair, the Manassites, took all the region of Argob, that is Bashan, as far as the border of the Gesherites and the Maakathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havath Yair, as it is to this day. To Machir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead, as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far over as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites." The Arabah also, with the Jordan as the border, from Chinaret, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, we'd call that the Dead Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over, armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. He's speaking specifically to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock 
I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. They approach Sihon the Amorite. He won't give them passage. God did that. He hardened his heart on purpose like Pharaoh's because I think in this case, the best example or explanation, he was not descended from Abraham. So as far as God was concerned, he had no longer a claim to that land. The iniquity of the Amorites was complete. God had told Abraham before it was not, but now it was. And Israel won their first rousing victory against him, and they devoted to destruction. That addition to destruction is an addition to the text. This is the word haram. We devoted them, haram, as in it was holy and needed to be destroyed. God had claimed it for himself, taking the land for their own. And we're going to discuss maybe all of your ethical concerns about that when we get to the book of Joshua. The short version is, God can do as he likes. Well, they defeat Sihon, and that draws the attention of Og. I always picture this guy as like a leopard-skinned leotard and a giant club dragon behind him. Og of Bashan. But he was also defeated. And he was the last Rephaim. The Anakim are still around, but the Rephaim, he's the last one. His bed was 13 and a half feet by 6 feet. That means his bed was longer than the high dive at a swimming pool. This was a big dude, and its bars were made out of iron so that it didn't collapse underneath him. And apparently, it was so impressive, they kept it as a memorial. You don't believe me? You can go to Rabbah and see it. We're not going to throw that thing away. And they took the land from the Arnon Valley in the south to Mount Hermon, or Hermon, in the north. And that would kind of become one of the northernmost boundary markers for Israel for some time. And the portion on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Although there are many different names for it, it is referred to mostly in your Bible as Gilead. So if you see it talking about Gilead, it's on the other side of the Jordan River, although it is still technically Israelite territory. That land was given to Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh. We read about this not long ago. They requested that because they had a lot of cattle, and that part of the land, which is now Jordan, is that country, is good pasture land, and so they kept it. They were, however, required to go into the promised land proper and fight with the other tribes. But God is trying to tell them, look, you've already beaten Sihon. You've already beaten Og. You don't got to worry about the rest of these guys. I've already demonstrated my power and my faithfulness to you. So you can see the theme unfolding here. Faithfulness leads to blessing. Unfaithfulness leads to calamity. That's pretty much the whole lesson of this book. Shorter section now, verse 23. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. I feel like I say that to my children at least one of them, once a day. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. Look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of his people. 
and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. After all these great victories, Moses is asking God to change his mind about letting him go into the promised land. We read about this in Numbers 20. This is when Moses was told to speak to the rock, and rather than speaking to the rock, he struck the rock. He communicated God's wrath when God was not angry. And so in Numbers 20, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. God was now angry with Moses for even asking. I've already told you, don't ask again. There are times, I believe in the power of prayer as much or more than anybody, but there are times when God says no, and as our sovereign Lord, that is his prerogative. And this story comes at the end of this historical review, kind of as a bummer moment, right? We're talking about all these great victories, and then we come back down. Why? He's trying to frame the memory, to frame the story with two examples of failure. The failure at Kadesh Barnea and Moses' own. He's saying those who defy God will not enter into his covenant blessings, not even Moses. He's trying to remind them God is with you, but all of this is going to be about keeping God's commandments. Because if you don't, you won't. And he's going to leave them where they still were. Verse 29 is where they are still waiting, is at Beth Peor, awaiting entry into the promised land. And Moses will not be going. So he's now going to launch into an appeal to the people to be faithful. And we will slow down a little bit in chapter 4, although time is still very short. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules. You're going to see that that couple a lot, statutes and rules. It's chukim and mishpatim that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor for the Lord, your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Keeping God's chukim and mishpatim, statutes and rules, that's the key to life and the key to the promised land, which they had learned at Baal or Baal Peor, where Balaam had come and tried to curse them, but he couldn't. So he sent all the hot chicks from Moab and Midian to seduce the men to go and worship Baal. That was their strategy, and unfortunately, it worked. And God had to send a plague among the people. What was the lesson in this point? God saying, those of you that kept the law are still alive. Kind of like, do I, do I need to emphasize this stronger? Keep the word. And he said, also, this will be a testimony to all the other nations living in darkness. They're going to see you. And they're going to say, what's up with your God, man? Because he listens to you. And look at your law. Your law makes sense. You're not crucifying the slave because something the master did. 
It's fair. It's just. What is this about your God? And this was always God's eternal plan. Isaiah 49.6 says it was too light a thing for the Messiah to only be the Savior of Israel. Christ is greater than that. He deserves the, the nations of the world. Now, one of the themes we're going to continuously discuss as we go through the book of Deuteronomy is the continuity and the discontinuity of the Old and New Covenants. There are many things that are continuous between the Old and the New Covenant, but there are, of course, some important things that are not. And one of the things that I want to focus on right now is that the Old Covenant was always meant to be overtaken by the New Covenant. It was always to be temporary. However, Israel's traditions and sins obscured what the point of the law was always supposed to be. To the point that when Jesus shows up, he had to clarify, I'm not trying to destroy the law, but you have so misunderstood it, it's going to sound like I'm destroying the law. When in reality, I'm fulfilling it. The purpose of the law was to reveal the righteousness of God to the people. It was to establish a nation. It was to govern this specific hand-picked nation of God in order to reveal God's righteousness to the world. So not just revealing it to them, but revealing it to everybody. Salvation was never by works. This is important because we are largely dispensational in our theology at Calvary Chapel, and many people accuse dispensationalists of believing in different methods of salvation. No. There was never a way to be saved through works. It was always faithful obedience in response to God's grace. That's one of the things that is continual between the Old and the New Testament. I mean, read the prophets. How many times does it tell them, guys, it's not about goats. It's not about sheep. It's about righteousness. Remember that Isaiah would say, I hate your new moon feasts and I hate your Sabbaths. Well, if that was the means of salvation, how dare he say that? Because that was not the means of salvation. It was a revelation of God's righteousness. That's why he would say, I wish one of y'all had the guts just to shut the door of the temple and not let anybody in until you got your hearts right. That's why Jesus could show up and say all the things he did. Because they completely missed it. And people still miss it to this day. Now, Obedience to the law was the response of faith that was required for these people, but it was an anticipatory faith, looking forward to the day that God would provide his Messiah. And that's where salvation comes from. And our new covenant is not one of works, but it is of faith alone. And it is especially and specifically that. But the point I want us to draw out today is that obedience still matters. How do I know that? Well, we're going to refer to the Sermon on the Mount an awful lot tonight. Some people have called the Sermon on the Mount a commentary on Deuteronomy. I wouldn't call it that far, but you can tell that Jesus has read the thing a few times when you read it. Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, I tell you, never mind Moses now, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says that right on the heels and right around saying things like, if you say I didn't murder anybody and you think you're good, I say if you've hated somebody in your heart or insulted them, it's the same thing. For you and me as Christians, the standard of righteousness is higher, not lower. Jesus said anybody who, who doesn't, or sorry, anybody who minimizes these things or teaches somebody else that it's, you don't have to obey righteous commandments, he says that person is going to be kept out of the kingdom of heaven. Obedience still matters. 
The law has been written on our hearts. And it is not a matter of prescribed rules, but it is in fact a greater responsibility. We are now required to live up to the standard of the character of God himself. And if you walk in obedience, just like the children of Israel, you'll live well. God's commandments are good ideas. Every so often, some psychologist writes a book that says something to the effect of, lying is not good for you. Well, who knew? Or forgiveness really seems to liberate the spirit. We've been on that, man. Jesus has been saying these things for this many thousand years. And we too will set an example to the world. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, which is almost exactly what Moses said in verse six of chapter four, that the other nations will look at you and say something's different about you. Righteousness is still required under the new covenant. I don't know how you can read your New Testament and come to a different conclusion. Verse nine, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Some of y'all saw some amazing things last week in the week of prayer, and the devil has been working overtime to make you forget what happened. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, or literally there, the Ten Words. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. He's referring back to the theophany, the appearance of God that happened at Mount Sinai as motivation to keep the law. Back in Exodus 19, if you want to read that. There had been no form of God to be seen there. It was just this amazing picture of fire and smoke and darkness. And it said trumpets and voices. And God declared the Ten Commandments out loud. And the people said, Moses, you know what? We're cool with you talking to God from now on. And, uh, you know, we'll just listen to you. They didn't, but that's what they wanted. Exodus 20, verse 20, God or Moses told them why God came down like that and spooked everybody. He said, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. God goes, the reason I came down like this is to make you scared of sin. It really to be scared of me and what I'll do to you if you sin. Now the children of this generation had not seen those things. And therefore it was up to those that had to pass it on. Not just the law, not just the lessons and the principles, but the story, the real genuine encounter they had had with God, just like Moses had done. Moses was like, I was there, I passed it on to you, but I'm not going to be here anymore. It's up to you to teach your kids. And just as that generation saw great miracles and a vision of God, so did our new covenant holy apostles. John said it this way. In John 1, he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. 
Moses couldn't see God's glory, but we have seen glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The main requirement for an apostle was to be a witness. Somebody who had seen Jesus, seen all the things that he did, and especially seen him risen from the dead. And to be teachers of the ways he had taught people to live. That's why the church values teaching the way that it does. Because that's our job. is not just to pass on the lesson, but to pass on the story. To maintain the memory of what happened. And the same mandate that God gave to Israel applies to us. We've got to pass on what God has done. We've got to teach these stories to our kids. My oldest is getting to the point where he's like, Dad, I feel like I know all the stories. And I'm like, good. I want you to know them all. I want you to know them so well you can tell somebody else. Because that means we're preserving the memory for another generation of what God did. Because this is real. We can't just boil it down to a few life lessons and pass those on. God really encountered us. We've got to carry that message forward. Why should I obey Jesus? Why should I do what he says? Because he was the son of God. He died on the cross and rose again. That's why. Because the apostles watched him ascend into heaven and be caught up in a cloud. That's why. Well, what proof do you have? The people that saw it wrote it down. They didn't have video evidence back then. Sorry. We have an unbroken tradition that has not changed for 2,000 years. That's what we have. You lose that memory and you lose everything. There are so many people today that think you can teach God's lessons apart from the story of Jesus Christ, the person of Christ, and you can have it work for you. And it doesn't. Look at these people that try to take the Bible, make a career out of it, helping people, but still kind of saying in the back door, but you don't have to believe any of this is real. It doesn't work. It never worked. We believe, and even though we haven't seen, the Bible says those who believe but have not seen have a special blessing. John 20, 29, Jesus told Thomas that. 1 Peter 1, verse 8 tells us that. Maintain the memory, because that's our motivation. Verse 15, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace. You see the difference between pulling an idol out of the furnace? He says, I pulled you out of the furnace. Out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God." 
Because they saw no form at Mount Sinai, Moses forbids them to worship the image of anything. I will just say this in passing. I find it very hard to understand why those in the Catholic or Orthodox Church feel that it is appropriate to create icons or other kinds of statues that Christians will then bow to, genuflect before, and light candles to. I know that theologically they say, well, we do not believe that these things are gods per se, but the Lord has told us in so explicit terms not to do that. I, I, I cannot get behind it. But let's move on and, and stay in the context here. He specifically calls them out for worshiping the stars. By the way, if you want to go to the Word for Today website, Pastor Chuck has an excellent Bible study on this where he talks about stars and he connects it to like stars in Hollywood and stars in L.A. And man, that man could preach. I'll tell you what. Go check it out. This is probably a reference to angels, to the planets, to the stars, astrology, the zodiac, things like that. And he said, these are the things that the godless Gentiles have been given over to, not you. He's not saying that that's who they were supposed to worship. He's saying that's who I gave them over to in their unbelief. In contrast to that, though, God had chosen them. And yet even Moses missed his inheritance because of rebellion. So he says, don't construct idols. Your God is a consuming fire. He's jealous for you. The Gentile church also has been rescued from dead idols. I don't much care for these people going back and wanting to preserve the memory of all these ancient mythologies that our forefathers abandoned for the gospel of Jesus. We've been made Christ's own bride. And just as any good husband is jealous for his wife, so the Lord is jealous for our loyalty too. Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But I almost could put a dot, dot, dot after that. You cannot serve God and anything. The temptations of the world are huge. I mean, ranging from the things he describes, false religions, the people think they're edgy and cool for going after, witchcraft is on the rise again, sensuality, carnality, pride, well, it's not, it's not sin, it's the culture. Man, idolatry was the culture of their day. He was calling them to be different. We have to be on the lookout for our own cultural sins and the idols that our people go after. One of them is called science. Another one is called sex. Another one is called success. You can come up with some others on your own, I'm sure. God will not share his glory. And you should fear the consequences of expecting him to share glory in your life. Verse 25, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Why eating and smelling? Because that's what the nations believed they were doing by offering sacrifices, giving the God food, putting a pleasant smell on their nose so that they won't hurt me. But verse 29 from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. 
When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Circle that verse, will you? For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Moses warns, if they worship idols, they will be exiled. I'll kick you out of this land, God says. And if you want to go worship those idols so much, then let them save you. Go to the lands of the people that worship those idols. And this is exactly what happened in 722 BC when the northern kingdom was carried away by Assyria. And 586 BC when the southern kingdom was carried away by Babylon. And not only that, but it happened again in 70 AD when the people crucified their own Messiah and said, we have no king but Caesar. But immediately here is a promise that if they call out to God and begin to seek him with a pure heart, then they will be restored to their land and their covenant. You cannot say that Israel's exile is evidence that God is done with them because exile was part of the covenant, as was restoration. And I wish I could talk more about verse 30. That's an eschatological promise, that in the latter days, they will return to the Lord and he will save them. We've been talking about this in Daniel. Zechariah 12.10 describes this. It's going to happen ultimately in the last days when Christ returns. But you might have recognized some of these verses here. Jeremiah 29.13, he said, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That comes on the heels of Jeremiah 29.11, everybody's favorite verse. Do you realize that in that passage, Jeremiah is deliberately making reference back to Deuteronomy? He's not just saying God will restore you because I think so. He's saying God has already promised that if you seek him with all your heart in Babylon, he will restore you. The consequences of disobedience are real, Christian. There's no rest to be found in idols and sin. All of these ridiculous people that go around the world to see how some other culture does religion, they always come home because they have enough money to leave that place. So they only ever see the tourist side of it where they try to take your money. They don't see the people that have been beaten down and oppressed and impoverished by these false gods for generations. They come home to the place where the gospel has reigned because they'd rather live there, although they despise it in their mouth. When anyone, even a Christian, persists in sin, they are given over by God to that sin. Romans 1 tells us that. Those who persisted in idolatry were given over to idolatry. Those who persisted in sexual immorality were given over, he says specifically, to homosexuality, perverse things. And in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a sinner in the Corinthian church that Paul said, put him out of the church, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul may be saved. There's a time where God allows us to be exiled and how you handle yourself in that exile reveals whether or not you're actually saved. Luke 15 talks about the prodigal son. I don't have time to read the story, but maybe you found yourself scrounging around among the pods of the pigs. You're taking any little bit of good thing you can, to, and that's going to hold you up and boost you up. Come home. Just come home. Stop trying to make it work. Stop trying to make Jesus and work. Stop trying to be the most religious of your friends and see how close to Jesus can I get. If you believe it, then do it. And if you don't, then just get out. What are you doing? You're wasting your time and deceiving yourself. Come home. 
This could be your day if you're wandering, if you're traveling, if you're backsliding. Just come home. There's nothing keeping you. But don't come home and try to think you can hold on to some of that. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace, says the hymn. The Lord will receive you, but you have to seek him with all your heart. Verse 32, we're coming to the end, and I know time is short. I'm going to go quickly. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war? by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today, and lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you, and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Who else but God? God raised up a nation for himself, provided for them a home that they might know that he was the only true God, and because of his everlasting love. And for that reason, he calls them to remember and keep his commandments. But just as there was no other God who could redeem Israel, there is no man like Jesus Christ, who has paid for our sins, who was also motivated by love, and in his love gave us his greater commandments. John said, this is the love of God. Oh, I love God. Do you? This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Under both covenants, here's this discontinuity. Salvation was not merited by obedience, but obedience demonstrates our faith, gives us a better life, and attracts others to salvation. The difference is the old covenant had no effectual sacrifice for sin. It was all hope. It was all trust. Unlike the new the Old Covenant was the revelation of God's righteousness, but it was also the revelation of man's unrighteousness. But both of those things met when Christ Jesus took our sins upon the cross and provided that effective sacrifice. They died in hope with the law as their guide until Christ came. But in Christ, we have forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit has written the law on our hearts. We have the truer and better knowledge of the truth and the power to obey and a life of grace in which to work these things out. If you desire to experience the fullness of abundant life in Christ, as well as life after this one, you must keep his word. There's no getting around it. 
There's no theologizing your way out of just doing what the book says. Quit messing around and come home. Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan, that the manslayer might flee there, anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally without being at enmity with him in the past. He may flee to one of these cities and save his life. These are the three first cities of refuge. Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland for the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites. You probably have read in other places in the Bible about Ramoth Gilead. Well, this is it. And Golan in Bashan for the Manasites. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land in the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Arawer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the sea of the Arabah under the slopes of Pisgah. There's a break in the speech here. Moses establishes the first three cities of refuge, which we've discussed. Verses 44 and 49 are a transition to the next chapters. Chapters 5 through 11 are going to be a main subsection of the actual law portion of Deuteronomy. We've had the introduction. There's a little break. We'll move on to the next one. He's going to list out those testimonies, statutes, and rules he's described. So they're standing on the edge of the promised land, and their old shepherd begs them to obey. And I, as your not-so-old-yet shepherd, also beg you to obey the word of the Lord. Jesus is our great God and Savior, and his commandments are only ever for your good. The wise man builds his house upon the rock, according to the word of the Lord. Have you not yet realized that when everything falls apart in your life, it's because you've been building on a foundation of sand apart from his words? Whatever you've got to forgive, whatever you've got to stop, whatever you've got to abandon, whatever you've got to start, do it today. If you fail to do those things and you follow an idol in your heart, you will be given over to serve it. And it has no ears to hear you when you cry out and no arms to gather you in its embrace when you're desperate. You'll find yourself exiled from the land of the Lord. And yet, if you hear his voice today and you cry out for forgiveness, he's waiting and ready to restore you right now. It is your obedience that will determine your experience of the living God. 